Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. With cases, hospitalizations, and deaths related to COVID-19 rising across the country, the vaccine we've been promised can't get here quickly enough. With the news that we now have two vaccine frontrunners, Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, both vying for FDA authorization, it's time to dive in and discuss the details of these vaccines. Just how safe and effective are these vaccines, and could this be our ticket out of the pandemic? Keep it here. The House Call podcast has the answers to your COVID vaccine questions. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin, and my goal is to help you and your family live a smarter, healthier life. Today's podcast is all about the COVID-19 vaccines, at least the two vaccines that we currently have the most knowledge of, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And now let's bring in our guest on the phone with Zoom call. I have Dr. Matt Sims. Dr. Sims is an infectious disease physician with Beaumont, and he's a House Call podcast veteran. He previously was on with us to talk about Lyme disease. He's a graduate of Stony Brook School of Medicine, and he did his ID training at the University of Rochester. Matt is also the director of infectious disease research at Beaumont, and he's been the principal investigator for several research studies related to COVID this year. Matt has also been an instrumental part of our vaccine preparedness efforts and our overall COVID pandemic response. The man wears a lot of hats. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Sims. Thanks, Nick. Uh, happy to be here, and uh, thank you for asking. So, Matt, obviously lots here, lots to discuss. Let's go ahead and dive in. Before we get to the Q&A part, I, I want to... I want to bring up a couple things. So first off, I believe it's important to timestamp some of this information uh, because things are changing very quickly. We want to make sure what we're presenting is accurate. Right now, as we have this conversation, it is uh, mid-December. We're anticipating that the vaccine will be available to our healthcare providers probably within a matter of days. Uh, and it's going to begin with healthcare workers first and long-term care residents like nursing homes. And then you know, eventually it will make its way out to the public. So I wanted that timestamp here to, you know, for the benefit of our listeners. Sure. And, and, and uh, just for specific, today's the day the FDA is meeting to discuss the Pfizer vaccine. Yep. And at this point, we have no reason to believe that the FDA is not going to grant emergency use authorization to the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, it's already... Uh... It's already been granted in the UK. Canada did it yesterday. Um, yep. We fully expect the FDA is going to grant approval. So the next thing I want to get into is sort of a, a summary timeline of where we are and how we got here in terms of vaccine development. And Matt, I'm going to ask you to kind of chime in here as we go through. So first off, we, we first became aware of the existence of COVID in late 2019. And I'm sure everybody remembers those days. There was mass uh, confusion. We didn't really have our hands around this thing for quite some time. Um, but from a vaccine preparedness perspective, this all really started back in March. Operation Warp Speed was announced in March of 2020 in efforts to expedite development of a COVID vaccine. And the benefit here of, of Operation Warp Speed was that it really helped clear away some of the bureaucratic red tape for vaccine manufacturers to focus their energy on research and development and not have to focus so much on the manufacturing and logistics aspect, since ultimately the government would sort of be helping to pave the way for that, correct? Correct. 
two companies, Moderna and Pfizer, quickly emerged as the front runners in the development of a COVID vaccine. And they were using a different kind of vaccine technology. They were using mRNA. Matt, can you talk a little bit about mRNA for the listeners? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's important, you know, standard vaccines usually either use a weakened form of a virus um, that actually can infect you, uh, but yep. but not really cause much disease, or pieces of a virus where they inactivate it completely and, and give you those pieces. Um, it takes time to generate those. The average time before this to generate a new vaccine is about 10 years. Um, now, warp speed indeed is how we've been going, and it's important to do so in the middle of a pandemic. RNA vaccines is something that's been in development for a while. This is not new, like brand new to COVID. They've been using it to develop other vaccines. But um, one of the big advantages of it is you don't have to take the time to grow the virus and activate the virus. It's a faster platform to develop vaccines on. And what they do is mRNA is, stands for messenger RNA. That's the, the, the message that makes um, any kind of cell develop a protein, right? Or translate yep. a protein. Um, and what they did is they created an mRNA that makes the spike protein of COVID that's the protein that sits on the outside that gives it that right. brown-like appearance that, that it's named for coronavirus. Um, and it's the protein that most of the neutralizing antibodies, the antibodies we make that neutralize the virus, seems to be directed to. So the, so the messenger RNA is sort of a blueprint for the spike protein. That's exactly right. And and by main by by manufacturing these spike proteins, we're creating something that the that our body cells will respond to and thus create antibodies. That's exactly right, and it's just a new way of doing the same thing we did with standard vaccines. Instead of putting the protein in, we put in these messenger RNAs that let our own cells make the protein right. and express it, and let our immune system attack it. And, and it was my understanding, Matt, that part of the impetus for this, as you pointed out, this is not brand new technology. This has been sort of theoretical, and there have been some companies working on mRNA vaccines for some time. But the advantage here was, one, speed, mm -hmm. uh, because we, we needed it fast. Yep. And two, and there was also a safety component here, because a lot of these vaccine manufacturers, these big companies, didn't want to deal with live coronavirus. Absolutely. Understandably so. That, it's that's much, a big thing. It, um, yeah, it's much safer to deal with the, the messenger RNA because you're not dealing with a live virus in your lab. That, that's correct. And not only that, you're not dealing with a live virus in that vaccine. So right. we can't give live virus vaccines to people who have immunosuppression. We have trouble giving it to people who live with people who have immunosuppression because Great they can point. spread it. Um, so having this sort of vaccine where there's literally no chance to cause the disease and no chance to spread the disease. And there's not even a virus here that could potentially make some sort of a, um, you know, an infection that, you know, a, a, that it does, while it won't cause the disease, might cause other problems. So this Good. is probably one of the safer methods for doing this. 
Good to hear. And I mean, we'll certainly talk more about safety and, and efficacy of these vaccines as we as we dig in. But then so so then by summertime, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, Pfizer and Moderna were already getting some promising data mm-hmm. in their early non-human trials. And this then allowed the companies to sort of pivot to conducting phase three trials using human subjects. Yep. And now here we are, end of 2020. Both companies have submitted their data to the FDA. Um, we're anxiously awaiting the FDA's decision to authorize the use of the vaccine through what's called a emergency use authorization. Matt, as you pointed out, we've already seen this in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have at this point no reason to expect that this will um, uh, be a stopping point in the U.S. We expect this to go through. Correct. I, I mean, I expect that either late today or early tomorrow, we're going to hear the answer from the FDA. So, you know, we, we, we overlooked a, a big step in this, and, and we can talk a little bit about it. I don't want to get too in the weeds here on the logistics and the storage issues. I think the, the public probably has heard that there certainly are some logistical concerns or, or challenges, I guess is maybe a better way to say it, with both of these vaccines. They require very cold storage, and they require a cold chain to be intact. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure. So it's really more with the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so mRNAs are fragile, right? They're meant to be uh, made and then go away. Um, So um, you have to store them at colder temperatures. Now, the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at minus 70 Celsius. That's really cold. Um, It takes very special freezers to do that. So it's not the kind of thing that you can do in, like, your doctor's office um, or in your corner pharmacy. Um, The Moderna vaccine is more stable It can be stored uh, for a long time at minus 20. That's a standard freezer. And for about six months, it looks like, just in a refrigerator. And refrigerator is the way we store normal vaccines. So most vaccines are stored in a refrigerator. So the Moderna vaccine does seem to have less logistical issues. Now, with the Pfizer vaccine, you have to defrost it, prepare it. Each vial, I think, is about five doses. Um, That's right. And uh, so you have to prepare it. You can't just... Give it. You can't inject it in somebody when it's ultra cold, obviously. Um, and so there are issues there. And I think we're going to see most of the use of the Pfizer vaccine will be at large healthcare systems, maybe departments of health, uh, things like that. There is um, some plans to get it to the residents of long-term care facility that, from what I've heard, involves storing it at the, the healthcare system and then distributing it through large pharmacy chains. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know all the details of those plans. These are just things I've heard about, you know, along the way. Likewise. I think there's there still are some logistical questions that, that even at this sort of late hour, we're still trying to hammer out. But um, a good summary of what some of those challenges are, to be sure. Um, I want to get into the, the two things you have to talk about when you talk about vaccines or safety and effectiveness, or efficacy, as we say. Um, Are they safe? Do they work? Those are the two fundamental questions. So I want to kind of go through, starting with the Pfizer vaccine, Matt, I want to talk about the Pfizer vaccine. This is a two-dose vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's given three weeks apart, Mm -hmm. so 21 days apart. And what does the data tell us about this vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine's effectiveness? Sure. So um, they measured it effectiveness was considered uh, starting seven days after you got the second dose, right? So Mm -hmm. that's when they expect full protection. And at that point, 
it's 95% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID, right? So yep, that's right. what we don't know is how it prevents asymptomatic COVID. So it could be that people can still get infected, but they never develop symptoms because the vaccine stops that. That we don't know. And yep. that's a big question still. But stopping symptomatic COVID is what's going to keep people safe and out of the hospital. Agree. And I think you bring up an important point, <clears throat> excuse me, because I think one of the questions is going to be, okay, so once I get the vaccine, do I, can I stop wearing my so mask? So the answer is no. Right. Right. So until a large enough percentage of the population gets it, where we're all protecting each other, right, Right. this herd immunity, essentially, and that's yep. estimated to be about 70% of the population, um, we're still in danger of spreading it. Um, so... Everybody still has exactly. to do their part to prevent the spread, even if they're vaccinated. The vaccine will protect them, but it may not protect others. Yep. Yep. Very good point. Glad we brought, glad we squeezed that in there because that is an extremely important point. And I, it's a question I certainly get a lot. I'm sure you do too. Sure. Absolutely. You mentioned, you mentioned 95% efficacy that I, I want to just highlight. That's across all age groups. Mm -hmm. That's across races, ethnicities. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to work better in one population or another. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, it's a two-dose vaccine. Do we know anything about just getting one dose versus getting both doses? Yeah, uh, getting one dose seems to be about 50% effective. So, mm -hmm. you know, they did look at how many people got it between getting the first dose and seven days after the second dose. And people got it in both groups, the placebo and the vaccine. But it was about 50% less in the, um, a little over 50% less in the vaccine group versus the uh, placebo group. And you know, when you get a vaccine, any vaccine, it takes time for your body to generate an immune response. I always tell people who get the flu vaccine, it's gonna protect you after about two weeks, right? If you leave here and three days later come down with the flu, it's because you were exposed before the vaccine gave you protection. It's not because right. the vaccine caused it, um, which is right. you know one of those myths that's out there. Um, yeah. So. If you get, if somebody gets this vaccine and within the next months gets COVID, it's not because the vaccine did it, it's because they weren't protected yet. Yep. Great point. Do we know how long the protection from the vaccine lasts? At least. Tricky question. At least two months. We can yep. say that because that's how long we followed these people so far. What right. The, the, the data collection period was only that long. What we can't say right now is how much longer. And that, I think, is going to be one of the most important questions over the next two years. Do you have any idea how the company is going to determine that? Is it going to be through, you know, just ongoing monitoring in phase three trials? Are they going to be doing blood tests? Do you, do you, any sense there? I, my, my feeling, and, and some of this is from, you know, our preparation to do some research, because I was on mm -hmm. a phone call planning vaccine research just this morning. Um, <laughs> My, my um, guess is that the companies are going to, number one, they're going to follow their um, vaccine cohorts from the studies two years. That's the plan. Um, okay. And number two, um, uh, there's going to be a reporting system probably in place for people who got the vaccine and then developed COVID. Um, okay. And then I think many academic institutions, hopefully including Beaumont, will be sort of doing their own tracking as well. In various ways, each one will give us different parts of the puzzle. 
So just to put a finer point on it, we we know this vaccine gives protection for at least two months. Mm-hmm. We can't really say how much longer than that. No. We we believe it will be a, a fairly robust protection for some time, but we just don't know yet how Some long. of the early data does make it look like this vaccine gives you a much stronger immune response than even the natural infection does. Which is curious. I think that's that sort of defies our conventional wisdom when it comes to infections versus vaccines. Typically, natural infection causes more of an immune response than vaccine in, uh, immunity, right? Yeah, and it, it may be because of the way the RNA vaccine works. It may right. just give you enough of a an oomph, you know, that you really make a very strong immune response. I want to highlight one other thing about the vaccine efficacy for the Pfizer vaccine. We really do not have um, adequate data for certain populations. We don't really have adequate data for kids. We don't really have adequate data for pregnant women. We Mm -hmm. don't really have adequate data for patients with compromised immune systems. So I can't really speak very eloquently on behalf of those folks. Matt, anything you want to add? No, you know, those are groups that were not tested, really. You know, they right. typically do not do first in human kind of studies in pregnant women because they don't know what it's going to do to their babies. They Correct. In this case, it was a specific decision not to test under 16 because kids don't get as sick from this. And so it was felt to be more important to really look at the adult population. Um, and then immunocompromised, similar thing. Um, I, you know, I don't know if they were specifically excluded or whether, uh, off the top of my head, or whether they just didn't have enough of them. Uh, but immunocompromised is an area also where um, vaccine is sort of tough to know. The good thing, as I said, is it's not a live vaccine. So even if you give it to an immunocompromised patient, it may not work as well, but it doesn't have the potential to harm them the way a live vaccine would. Good point. Excellent point. I, I think that is the risk of an immunocompromised person getting this vaccine. It's not risk of, of activating the virus somehow and, and getting the infection from the vaccine. It's more a question of will the vaccine work as well as yeah. it should? We don't know. And we don't know. And it's going to depend. You know, we say immunocompromised like that's one group of people. There's a right. hundred different ways to become immunocompromised. And for some of those ways, it may work just fine. And for others, it may not. Let's pivot to the other side of the coin, which is the safety uh, mm-hmm. of the vaccine. Talking about Pfizer still, um, the safety and the side effect profile. Matt, what do we know about this for the Pfizer vaccine? Sure. Look, um, we know more about Pfizer because they've, the data to, that went to the FDA has been released. Moderna, I have not seen that data yet, um, but I've seen some press releases about it. Um, essentially, both of these vaccines uh, are safe, Right. Um, they tend to give the typical kind of uh, reactions that vaccines can give. Redness where you get the injection, a little pain yep. there, achiness, maybe a little fever, tired, sometimes joint pain, those sort of things. You know, inflammatory sort of side effects. Makes sense. What you're doing is you're activating your immune system that causes inflammation. Right. It's less with the first shot than it is with the second shot. The second shot... Um, more people in the vaccine group really did get um, those side effects. And for some of them, they were, you know, fairly significant. You know, I've had lots of vaccines over my life, and sometimes I'll get a little achy at the sight of the the vaccine, or sometimes I'll even feel a little tired. Um, But, you know, it 
seems that for some people that really kind of knocks them for a loop for a day. It doesn't really make them dangerously ill or anything like that, but it might make them want to stay in bed for a day or so. Right. Um, so it's something we're taking into consideration as we're planning how we're going to give it out to not like, you know, pick like one of the ICUs and give it to everybody on that ICU on the same day because we don't want them, you know, a large number of them the next day calling in sick um, because they need to rest. Um, in terms of significance, you know, things like deaths or serious events or things like that, really they're safe. There were not major ones um, in any of uh, the reports. Now, when the UK started uh, giving it out, they've reported a couple of cases of serious allergic reactions. Um, yeah. They were all in patients who had these really large histories of allergy, like where they've reacted to a lot of things before. Um, and the answer to that is um, to be ready for it, right? Have, have EpiPens around for patients like that. Give it in a place where, you know, if you need to, you can transfer them quickly to an emergency room, something like that. I think the UK is holding off for now on giving it to patients with that sort of history. Um, you know, I have not, we'll, we'll hear what the FDA says about it. They may make the same sort of a suggestion. We just don't know yet. Sure. Glad you brought that up. That is certainly making headlines today uh, as we as we watch the news. I want to highlight most of the side effects you discussed, the injection site soreness, fatigue, headaches. Those are predominantly self-limited, which means they last a short amount of time. They go away on their own, typically start about a day or so after the vaccine, usually last about 24 hours. Very low incidence of serious side effects. By all metrics, this seems like a very safe vaccine. Matt, does this seem to be about on par with other vaccines um, that we commonly use or prescribe to our patients? You know, absolutely. Uh, though, as I said, um, with the second shot, it does seem to be maybe a little more exaggerated uh, mm -hmm. than we get uh, with other with other vaccines. Um, you know, there are a couple of vaccines out there. Adicel gives a lot of achiness, for example. Um, so does Shingrix. The new, the new shingles vaccine. The shingles vaccine. A lot sure. of people report a lot of like, you know, really getting knocked out by it, with especially with the second shot. Um, and we think it's really how immunogenic that vaccine is, right? The more it activates your immune system, the more likely you are to get those sort of side effects. And that's, you know, when you look at it in that way, that's a good thing, right? That tells you the vaccine is likely to work really well. Adicel. Shingrix, these are these are vaccines that work really well. Shingrix work, you know, has much higher uh, rates of efficacy than some of the other vaccines uh, used along the way. So the the rates of efficacy in these vaccines are much higher than you know a lot of the standard sort of vaccines we use, and that's probably reflecting that they're very immunogenic. Just and that's probably why they have the side effects they do. That's a great point. The correlation between, you know, vaccine-related side effects, soreness, achiness, mild symptoms correlating to the vaccine actually working. It's, I, I had never really thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I think that that's a very good point to bring up. Let's pivot to the Moderna vaccine. Sure. Um, Moderna vaccine, another two-dose vaccine. This one is given, uh, I believe, four weeks apart, mm -hmm. 28 days 28 apart. Days. So, slight, so slightly different than the Pfizer vaccine. Same question. What do we know about the Moderna vaccine's efficacy? How, how well sure. does it work? 
Um, so here we don't have the FDA package yet, or at least I have not seen the FDA package. Uh, yeah. But the press releases from the company is that it's 94.1% effective. And 94.1 and 95 are essentially the same, right? The, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's any difference in the efficacy of uh, the Moderna vaccine versus the Pfizer vaccine. Now, there's one little theoretical uh, potential benefit of Moderna, but we it's, the numbers are really too small to make a lot out of this. And that's that um, while both um, vaccines had some breakthrough cases where people who got the vaccine did get COVID, um, in the Moderna, there were none of them that had what we would call serious COVID, where in mm. the Pfizer, there was one. So, okay. you know, I've seen some news articles make a big deal of it. The numbers are too small to mean anything at this point. Um, but that's, a, you know, an important piece of the puzzle is, um, you know, with the flu vaccine, for example, we know that even if it doesn't prevent you from getting the flu, it's more likely to mean that the flu will be short and not serious. And we're hoping we see similar things with uh, the COVID vaccines also, that even if you do break through and get a case of COVID, that you won't really be very sick from it. Good to know. I think you brought up a, probably the most important point, which is that we just don't have as much data at this point available to us. We expect the Moderna vaccine is probably going to be available sometime in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. We certainly hope to see more data soon. We'll we'll do everything we can to keep you apprised as we learn more data and get more information yeah. about Moderna is about a week behind Pfizer in their submission yeah. and whatnot. So it's been submitted, but I think that it's sort of next week where they're talking about looking at it. What do we know, uh, Matt, about the Moderna vaccine's safety profile? Seems sure. pretty similar to Pfizer's, correct? Similar things, maybe slightly higher numbers um, of the side effects in the second dose. Um, and that may be something as simple as the second dose is a week later, and you've had one more week of developing antibodies um, before you get it. You know, until we give it to really large numbers of people and, and see... You know, we're never going to have the final, like, what are the absolute percentages, uh, but but essentially very similar from what's been released to Pfizer, just maybe a little more common. So with all that in mind, we talked about the safety and the efficacy of both vaccines. Let's talk a little bit for a second about what happens next. So who is getting vaccinated first? Do we have any sort of timeline at this point for when the vaccine might be available to the general public. Yeah, um, so the ACIP, which is the CDC's vaccine arm basically, uh, met mm -hmm. uh, a little over a week ago and made their recommendations. Um, and the, the recommendation is in what they're calling phase one of the vaccination that frontline healthcare workers and uh, long-term care facility residents uh, get the vaccine. So that's the doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, everybody involved in actually taking care of COVID patients. Um, and then people who live in like nursing homes and things like that, because the, those patients are at the highest risk of mortality and the physicians and nurses and everybody else are at the highest risks of exposure and are necessary to uh, keep everybody healthy uh, and to treat the cases that come in. It's kind of analogous to you know, what they tell you on a plane, if there's, you know, if the uh, oxygen mask drop, put it on yourself before you put it on the person next to you. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, 
this is not a decision that's being made by doctors to give it to ourselves. This is a decision being made at the highest levels to really say we have to protect uh, healthcare workers in order to protect everybody else. A commonly asked question that I get, Matt, is do we expect that this vaccine will be mandated for any populations, whether they be healthcare or the public? What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, at this point, no. Um, I don't know any healthcare system that is expecting to mandate it. Um, it really can't be, right, if it's under sort of an investigational use or emergency use authorization, right? Right. So, you, can't, yeah. you can't force anybody into it. Now, interestingly, right. I did see a news article about a restaurant that's going to insist that their healthcare, that their workers, not healthcare workers, but their workers uh, get the vaccine if they want to work mm. there. Um, now, it's going to be a while before it gets to the general population because yeah. there's not that much of the vaccine yet. Um, and, you know, there's been all sorts of things in the news about, you know, what Pfizer offered and what the government accepted and et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to really get into the politics of this situation, but um, there's only so much vaccine to go around right now. Um, yeah. They're making more as fast as they can, but we're, the U.S. is only one part of the world and it needs to go everywhere. Um, so I think until, you know, maybe the next vaccine start coming uh, down the line, we're still going to be um, in the, you know, really high risk phase and not get, get to the, the general public. I'm expecting, you know, if I'm hoping that maybe by the beginning of the second quarter next year, we'll start being able to do some of the general public. But I don't, I don't really expect it will be before then. Final thought, Matt, and before we close this up, I, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're incredibly busy and, and, and we're very fortunate to have you with us. But final thought, lots of people very apprehensive about vaccines in general. And now looking at this process and saying that the speed with which this vaccine has sure. come out and the relatively limited amount of data that we have, this is giving some people pause. I, you know, we've talked today about it, that it's safe. We've talked today that it's effective. What should people know about these vaccines? What's your final word on this? You know, the final thing is we need them, right? And yes, they, they were done quickly, but they've also been done with more care than a lot of vaccines um, were developed in the past. So the smallpox vaccine, perfect example, right? They used to rate it, it's cowpox is what's in that. It's, and it's live virus. And you know how they used to harvest it? They would take rakes and scrape the virus off of the udders of infected cows. There was no safety. <laughs> there was no nothing. You know, that's how it was done. This is the right. history of medicine, right? Um, and people did pretty well with that. We wiped smallpox off the face of the earth, right? Yeah. Um, while this was done fast, there's things to be aware of. The technology is better. That gives us more speed. The need yeah. is urgent. That gives us more speed, right? They threw more money at this than's ever been thrown at developing vaccines before. That gives us more speed. They tested this. Every vaccine is being tested on a minimum of 30,000 patients. That's a huge study. Now, yeah, we'd love to follow them out three or four years to make sure that there's nothing funny that happens. We can't do that. We, we need them now. And, you know, the, the most important thing I can tell you in my faith in these is as soon as they call me, I'm right in line. And Nick, you remember, you and I were the first two in infectious disease to get the H1N1 vaccine when it was available here for healthcare workers. 
Oh, um, yeah. You're, you're, you're damn right I'm going to be, be in line for this. I'm sure. not going to jump to the front of the line here because, you know, the, there are other people who are more at risk than I am, um, yeah. who are in and out of those rooms way more than I am. Uh, but as soon as I'm my turn comes, I'm getting that vaccine. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto. Let's leave it there, Matt. I think that um, that's about all the information we have time for today. I thank you so much for your time. You're a veteran to the podcast, and we'll certainly have you on again sometime. So thanks, Matt. Sounds great. Take care, Nick. I just want to reiterate something. Matt was alluding to this, um, but I think I need to put a finer point on it. I think that just because we're now talking about vaccine, there may be this uh, desire. Certainly, um, I feel it too, but... It's important, I think, for people out there listening to know that once this vaccine is more widely available, it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to just automatically stop doing the things that are important right now, like masking and social distancing and hand washing. Those are still going to be important measures. There's still a lot that we have to learn about the overall effectiveness of this vaccine. As Matt pointed out, there's still a possibility that even though someone is vaccinated, there's a potential to, to be able to spread the virus. We still need to learn more about that. So um, I think the short and sweet version of this is we do want the public to get vaccinated, but we also need the public to continue to practice those mitigation strategies like hand washing, masking, and social distancing. I also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. Dr. Shah Jahan and I are always scouting the best questions. And I'm going to leave you today with this healthy thought. The COVID vaccine is finally here, and our preliminary data suggests that these vaccines are both safe and effective. The data suggests that both vaccines are more than 94% effective after two doses, and the risk of serious side effects is very low. Some side effects like pain at the injection site or body aches or fatigue may be more common, but these appear to be relatively mild and only last about a day. Right now, the vaccine is being prioritized for healthcare workers and at-risk persons living in long-term care facilities. Soon, it will be available to the general public. Getting the general public vaccinated will be mission critical to moving us beyond the COVID pandemic. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit beaumont.org podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.